Happy Friday, everybody. This is your host, Casey Diaz, at the Shot Caller Podcast. Hey, has anybody seen my co-host, Joe Dealer? I sent him out there to the pupusas and never got back here to the studio. Joe, if you're out there, I know what you're doing, bro. You are eating the pupusas all by yourself. Bro, just get back to the studio. Anyhow, we have a great show for you today. We have FBI agent John Rikes with us today to share his stories, him growing up, him being part of the FBI here in the United States. And it's interesting because we have, let me give you a little little background here of the FBI. The FBI has about 36,000 employees in total, with about 1,400 of those being special agents and the remaining 2,200 being professional support. There are 56 field offices within the U.S. and another 380 satellite offices. It's a big agency, and if you were anything like me, um, it's an agency that you do not want them to come knocking at your door. And, um, well, uh, I remember one incident, and I'll share this before I introduce our, our special guest. Um, I had a shop in, uh, in Van Nuys, California, in the San Fernando Valley. And I remember one day I, I came into the shop, and there was a print shop at the opposite end of the corner of the same block. And um, I remember I came to the shop, I had my coffee in hand, and the next thing I know, there is, I mean, hordes, hordes of, uh, of law enforcement uh, cars just racing to this corner. And it just so happened to be my neighbor down the street getting raided by the FBI. And I thought to myself, you know, it feels really good when it's not you. <laughs> I'm just going to be straight up like that. It feels good that they're not chasing after you. Uh, those days are uh, gone and done with. But today we have our special guest, FBI agent John Rikes. John, welcome to the show. Um, we're going to start in San Jose. And um, because before you got to the FBI, you were in San Jose. Can you share with us what that was like and what got you involved in in law enforcement to begin with? But let's start in San Jose. You know, when when, when um, you said um, San Jose, correct? That That's where that's you started? That's correct, yes. San Jose, that, I mean, that's um, the only reason I, w uh, I ever went up north was for the wrong reasons. And so uh, I, I, I never went to uh, San Jose, kind of drove by through there, um, you know, a bunch of friends. But, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's so interesting to me how just life kind of, I don't want to say lands on your lap, but it's timing, right? It's like timing with everything. Um, you know, you, 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 there's a need there, and then you go, well, I need to do something, and um, and there you are. Um, next thing you know, you're 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 in law enforcement. And, um, and what was your favorite aspect of of that job at, in San Jose to begin with? I think initially it was uh, attempting to interact uh, with the public in a positive way, uh, but that had a downside. Uh, 
And the downside was that it became clear, and I go into it whenever I lecture, even if I lecture overseas, is that a police officer uh, with a minimal education in law enforcement is really not prepared to uh, handle the situations that you encounter. And I thought uh, when we were talking, what I didn't mention is that when somebody picks up the telephone to call 911 because they are having a family disturbance, uh, a husband versus wife, wife versus husband, lover versus uh, neighbors, et cetera, et cetera, that takes a tremendous amount of anxiety to pick up a phone and ask somebody that they don't know to come to their house to solve their problems. And on the other side of the coin is a police officer who in many instances has minimal educational background in the sociodynamics of a family interaction, particularly if it's in a culture that they're not familiar with, they show up with a gun and a badge and they're trying to tell somebody how they're gonna handle their problems. Very, very challenging. You know, um, uh, being on the other uh, side of this, you know, uh, in my book, I write about domestic violence. And that's one of those, um, it is a challenging thing. I mean, I, you know, as an adult now, I look at those instances and, and you know, m my father was the offender at this time. And, uh, you know, uh, cops were just, uh, it was part of our, our life just growing up. Um, uh, at that particular moment, my brother wasn't born yet. And, um, so it was just me, and uh, I remember, um, you know, uh, him lashing out on my mom. And then um, the next thing you know, uh, we, she, she never wanted to contact police. She just wanted to, you know, kind of like, it, it, I didn't understand that as a kid, but I, I remember this one incident in particular where, um, and, you know, law enforcement was a lot different back then. Uh, and um, I remember, let's just say they, uh, they had a field day with him because they were tired of, of coming to the same apartment and dealing with, with my father. And uh, I remember as a little kid seeing uh, how this one uh, police officer just, uh, you know, rightly so. I mean, he, he, he was just angry that, you know, here's this guy beating on this woman. And, you know, my mom's very, very tiny. I mean, she's what, four foot 11 or something like that. Um, and uh, I remember he gave him a little, a little piece of his own uh, medicine and, um, and, and I'm standing there looking at this, watching this, and inside of me as a kid, I thought, he deserves that. You know, he deserves that. It, it's, it's a very, very, um, I don't want to say it. it, it's a very touchy uh, moment, like you say. Um, um, you know, they're, they're expecting law enforcement to solve their problems. How, how does that work? How is that going to happen? Um, you know, I, I'm sure that you, you've seen so much on the field both in local law enforcement, and then you go in to the FBI. What was the most interesting investigation that you worked on that you could actually share with us? And, you know, and I know one of them, uh, there's two of them that, that you actually, um, um, uh, we talked about. And we discussed about two airline hijackings. Can you share some, some of that with us? Uh, sure, you know, what's happening, what happened is that over the course of time, uh, many of the cases that the FBI had in regards to international terrorism are us dealing with individuals coming to the United States from other countries. 
most of the crimes, the motivation in a hijacking or the motivation in saying that they were going to bomb an airline, uh, all the variety of different things was based upon a desire to get money. So they're going to put a, an explosive device in the baggage claim area of United Airlines and then extort from United Airlines X amount of dollars in order not to do that again. That's how it started initially. Subsequently, we began to have the vibrations uh, and the irregular problems in the Middle East. And then we had international terrorism where the objective was not to get money. The objective was to do as much damage as possible. That changed the entire dynamic, both from the standpoint of a police officer going to a hostage situation or somebody with a gun, and it applied to the FBI as well, when you've got an airplane hijacking or a terrorist incident where they're in a building, they're committed to die in advance for a set of religious, moral, or ethical principles that they have bought into. They're not trying to escape. They're not trying to get money. So now the law enforcement, whether it's the police, the FBI, the sheriff's office, has to respond to something like that where the application of a hostage negotiator has now disappeared. They don't want to negotiate. Their purpose is to kill. So you can see the complexity where you may have one particular hijacking or extortion based upon the desire of money, and the next one is the desire to kill everybody that's there. Two completely uh, contradictory uh, situations, and now you have a SWAT team or FBI or police SWAT team. Do you send in the SWAT team and kill everything with a gun, or do you negotiate? Do you send a negotiator in? Uh, what exactly do you do in the situation, and how much time do you have to make a decision whether you negotiate or you go in guns a-blazing and attempt to stop the hostage taker or the terrorist from killing more people. Very complex decisions. You know, uh, um, when we're, we're used to the movie side, right? When, uh, you know, uh, abroad, uh, uh, nation, nationwide, we, we look at movies and, and uh, we, we love watching, you know, all the action. And uh, how accurate is these sets? And, and how accurate is Hollywood when it portrays the FBI in situations like this? I think the first thing that you have to realize is the incidents that the police or the FBI are involved with sometimes take seconds. Let me give you an example. We had a hijacking at San Francisco airport many years ago where the news media was in a position where they could videotape the agents entering the aircraft and then all of a sudden, they see the, the, the doors open, the slides come out, and people are sliding down. In between that process, and I was participant in it, uh, the lead hijacker near the gangway was shot and killed. A very courageous FBI agent went down the aisle and, and took on the second hijacker and shot and killed him. The... Other agents were trying to save the life of a passenger who had been shot by, the, by one of the hijackers who was bleeding out. 
the flight attendant screaming and yelling that the hijackers had a bomb on board, we had to evacuate the aircraft. All of that, when you look at the videotape, was less than 40 seconds. Wow. So now you can imagine Hollywood trying to make a one and a half hour movie or a 27 uh, minute long television program where they have to add all kinds of suspense and all kinds of collateral um, acting to go in to make the program interesting. But from a realistic standpoint, it just took seconds. And during that process, everybody involved had to make decisions in a matter of seconds. You know, we, we, we see now that um, local law enforcement, and I'm pretty sure with uh, the FBI as well, they have simulators uh, in their departments where uh, civilians can go in there and kind of walk through a scenario uh, and with a screen, a green screen right in front of them. And, um, and, and, and they have the opportunity to um, pretend that they're in that situation right then and there. And I think that's a great idea to have because, you know, today in, in society, we have this, um, this thing about law enforcement, um, you know, in, in, and, it, and it comes from all over, all over the end, you know, just angles from, from everywhere. It's not just uh, in one particular city or, or in one little town. It's, um, it's more um, prevalent now where we see uh, a disdain for law enforcement and, and these people, uh, uh, you know, they're very, they're very fast to judge a police shooting. Um, and, you know, uh, just recently we had uh, a shooting that well, didn't involve law enforcement, but, you know, it, it's, it's, to me, it's, I've learned to look at both sides and, and really do the homework because it's so easy to look at footage, right? And then assume something and, uh, and then we run with it. And then you have you know, media that doesn't help at all. Uh, that will uh, portray something and, and they push whatever they want to push uh, on the people. But it, it, when, the, when, they, when the civilian goes into a police uh, the department and takes that uh, simulation uh, um, uh, training thing, uh, uh, they come out with a different view. And I think this is where, where, where like what you're sharing right now is, you know, it's only seconds. It's not like Hollywood. It's not, they don't, you know, the whole, there's not this whole chunk of, you know, 30, you know, 40 minute, um, uh, a bunch of actors and uh, action, uh, you know, and lights and, and the booming and everything. It, it is only seconds. And I think that when they, when they take these courses, um, uh, which are free, by the way, you could just call your local law enforcement and, and they'll, they'll most likely have them and they'll let you come in and, and, and take it. Um, Every single time I've seen this on, on the news, I've seen that that person comes out with a different view of police shootings and, um, and stuff like that. And I think that's... You know, when, you're, when, a, when a police officer or an FBI agent is hired, they do not have to take a test to show that they are the toughest person on the street. They are not hired because they can get into a combat situation, whether boxing, wrestling, or using a gun, and they can handle every street situation. So one of the most complex things that the news media doesn't help with, and then also the movies don't help with, 
is that somebody who's muscular and is your size, I'm not going to be able to knock you out with one swing, particularly if it's just with my left hand. So, so the old question is, how many police officers does it going to take to arrest you without hurting you, depending upon your occupation, et cetera? And I first learned that when you know how it is, if somebody is a cement finisher and they're pouring patios, they may be 35 years old, five foot nine and a half, and 185 pounds. That's not a huge person. Trust me. If they are a cement finisher for a living, and you say, how many people is it going to take to arrest that person again without hurting them? Is it going to take one person, police officer, two, three? In many instances, it may take five. The only other alternative is to use chemical agents. So now you're either squirting them with some kind of a chemical agent or you're using a taser. And sometimes people overpower the tether. So now you look at that dynamic on the street, you're watching a movie where all of a sudden a police officer uses a special arm bar to disable somebody or a five foot nothing female police officer who weighs 111 pounds. Is she going to bring you down in a flash? Of course not. So you end up seeing on the streets what well, looks like a horrible situation. Five policemen jumping on this one young man, etc., and everybody is screaming and yelling as opposed to what they saw in a movie that, that they were able to easily subdue somebody. That's not realistic. And as you know, it looks horrible for five policemen to be jumping on one person. But that's what they're trying to do is to arrest that person without hurting he or she. And that's not easy. You know how strong people can be based upon your background. That, that's, uh, that's absolutely correct. You know, and, and that's why I say, you know, uh, and I get in the, these discussions with, um, you know, certain people and, and, and they're very, um, you know, emotional when, 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 when we're in these discussions. And I, and I, and I kind of like look at them and I go, and, and for, for the most part, um, I've learned how to, um, I think there's a way to kind of like, um, kind of like calm people down. Um, I, I think you learn that through time, uh, through uh, <laughs> the field of work that you're in. Um, for me, I, I've learned this through business. I've been in business for 23 years. Um, and, and also, of course, because of uh, street knowledge and, and my pr uh, prison background. But I've learned to just kind of have someone tone it down a bit when we're in these these discussions because they can get very heated. And, and I always finish with saying this to them is, you know, you got to look at the whole story. You got to look at everything. You can't just look at one portion and then base a decision on the character of a person or an agency. There's reasons why they do things the way they do. And I love that you just explained that, you know, uh, you know, cement, uh, a Mason guy, you know, they're carrying bags of cement. I don't know if you've ever carried one. Uh, right. Just a common guy. You carry a bag of, of cement. I'm a sign guy by, by trade, and I've carried cement bags all the time. They're not light. And, and uh, if you could bring one of those over your shoulder, and you do, you're doing about, you know, a good 20, 50 bags a day, your strength is pretty, pretty darn good. 
Um, and they don't know that. So uh, I love that you, you, you bring that, that, that point across very clearly. I wanted to, to, to talk to you because prior to law enforcement, prior to the FBI, you did something absolutely different to make a living. And you talked about working in some kind of fruit uh, company. Can, can you share some of the, uh, something about that? Well, when I was a, when I was a young boy, uh, starting at age 12, uh, my parents didn't have a lot of money. And so what we would do is cut apricots. So the first thing that we would do is uh, the older boys, the 15 and 16 year old boys, they would go ahead and pick the apricots from the trees and they'd bring them over um, in a lug box and they'd pour them on a four foot by eight foot tray. We would then cut the apricots in half. The, uh, the pit would go down on the ground those would be collected to go make charcoal briquettes in Stockton. The, the apricots would go to a sulfur house and that's where they made dried apricots. And the reason for the sulfur was to uh, keep the, the, uh, the flies and the insects from getting onto the fruit. Then you would take the fruit out and you would stack the trays flat uh, around the orchard and the sun would dry them out. And then you'd have to wash them because the birds would dive bomb on the apricots. And that was before we had dehydration. But one of the things you mentioned, one of the jobs I had was a, they didn't have plastic, but they had metal wheelbarrows. And I would go to the various machines at canneries that were making canned apricots, canned peaches, etc. All the scraps that fell on the floor would pick those up and then they would go to make fruit cocktail. <laughs> and for years, I just never wanted to drink or to buy fruit cocktail until, of course, it's now much more sanitary. <laughs> yeah. When I heard that story, I thought, well, that is hilarious. Because how many of you out there have had some uh, cocktails? And then you didn't know, but if you were uh, uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, yeah, that's, uh, you were eating that. <laughs> but, that but it was interesting doing those kind of jobs. That's, uh, as a white kid, that's the first time I began, other than through sports, to interact on a daily basis with people who were Hispanic. And so we ended up working together. And later on in high school, and I can remember distinctly uh, a fight at Spivey's drive-in restaurant in Mountain View, where now we're pitted against a group of Hispanics, some of whom I work with in the fields, and all of a sudden, we have their tribe and my tribe going to go ahead and fight. Yet we knew each other, and we worked together seamlessly in the fields. But all of a sudden, we're now in a different tribe, and there's going to be a fight. Uh, that really hit me very, very deeply. Uh, and, I could, and I could see later on as a police officer uh, that, that separation uh, between the, the ethnicities. Uh, that was very disturbing. That's something that we have not solved today, uh, and yet it's, it's, it's existed for as long as I remember. Wow. You know, uh, and it's, uh, I just had a, a fellow uh, former uh, ex-comic who uh, grew up uh, up north, uh, north, northern California, and uh, he was sharing the same thing, uh, you know, growing up on, in a farm, uh, um, you know, with chickens and uh, picking uh, from the free trees, uh, 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 fruit trees, 
and that was his family business. Um, you know, growing up, that's that's what he remembers. And I thought when you know when I'm listening to your story and then listening to his, reminded of his, you know, it it, it looks so wholesome. It looked like you know that's what you did back then. You you worked hard and you started early. You worked uh, at a very young age. You know, today uh, <laughs> you got uh, teenagers and young adults uh, that don't want to lift up a finger. I mean, that's just how it is right now, right? We see a lot of that. We see a lot of, uh, you know, uh, young adults that are living in, you know, in, in their, their parents' basement or garage. And there's like no motivation. One of the things that I love about, um, you know, the older generation to me is just their work ethic and their ethic, period. But their work ethic was just, you know, you did what you needed to do and you got up in the morning, you made no excuses. Your parents didn't allow you to make excuses. You just went out there and got it done. Uh, I think it was just a, a different, the different America that we were growing up on back then. And, uh, I, you know, you, you think about the, you talk about the trades, you know, the, the trades coming out of um, uh, high school. You, there is no carpentry shop anymore. There is no mechanic shop now. And, um, you know, what are they going to do? I mean, you know, uh, and I get it. We're in a generation of, of media, of social networks and, and all that stuff and video and, and, you know, podcasts, but we're still going to need chairs. We're still going to need, you know, tables to, to, to eat. We're still going to need cars to run. And, um, I, I just, it's one of those things that I wish I was born in that era back there because it just, it, it would just look wholesome, you know, and, and today uh, we're just in a different time that just doesn't, to me, it just doesn't make sense. Um, everybody has an experience. And looking back to when I was, when I was a kid back in Boston, I mean, I want to make sure that people don't forget there was, there were situations in violence then. I lived in South Boston, which was an Irish Catholic neighborhood. That was in the South End. In the North End were Italian Catholics. And we were not happy. We would allow the Italians to come in and buy something or make a delivery. But they weren't going to be dating any Irish girls. They weren't going to be hanging around in South Boston, nor were we going to be hanging around the North End and dating any gals who were Italian. And this is, this is going back until the 50s. So there are still certain characteristics that human beings, for some reason, don't want to do away with. They, don't, they always want to look at each other and become tribal. And whether you're a Los Altos Knight or you're a Mountain View this, or whether you are uh, one culture or not, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, I mean, look at the Middle East. Look at the difference between the Palestinians and the Jewish states. This has been going on for a thousand years. Yeah. So it really becomes different when you leave the police department and you go to the FBI, and now you're working international terrorism. All of a sudden, you begin to see the similarities from what was happening in your youth, the fights between uh, a Hispanic gang and a black gang and a white gang. And now you're looking at the Middle East, and you're seeing the difference between the Irish Republican Army, the provisional Irish Republican Army, the British in Ireland, Northern Ireland, some of the other aspects of Ireland, they're fighting and killing each other. It, it seems to, to not ever dissipate. I mean, we had some people from Ireland 
that were coming to the United States to buy those remote control cars, the kind that you have with a little battery, and then you can control it with your device. They were going to buy them and put explosive devices on them, bring them back to Ireland, and then with the remote device, drive them over 150 yards away to get underneath a British Jeep and then blow it up. Wow. So there's some simple little toy, and you wonder, what are these people doing in the United States? Why do these Irish people hate each other, different sections of Ireland? That's the same way you see some of the gangs doing the same thing. And I think it's a hard issue at hand, really. You know, um, um, you know, it, it's um, uh, one of the things that, however, one of the things that I do like about the, the these new generations is um, I think that there, there's a, a, a lot less, um, you know, the interracial uh, marriage, the, you know, dealing with other people uh, is actually a little bit better than, than, than in past times, I think, um, or it gives a, you know, an illusion of that. Uh, but I think it's an, a, a hard issue. You know, you, you, you don't become, uh, you know, you don't go into racism just on your own. I think that's, that's taught. That's, uh, you know, you, you know, um, I remember for me in particular, um, I remember, uh, being in, I think it was like second or third grade, but I had a, uh, uh, a friend having to be black and I brought him to the apartment where we lived. And we were just playing Hot Wheels, man. We were just, you know, in my living room playing Hot Wheels in this little apartment. And he was allowed to come to, to you know, uh, to come in uh, by his parents to come over to mine. And I remember my father, man. My father walks in and he sees him. And, I mean, I, I, <laughs> the look on my father was, it was very threatening. And I remember him calling me and then saying, you know, some very very uh, horrible words and get this, you know, boom, boom, boom. You, I'll leave it to your imagination. Get them out of here. And I thought, you know, you're a kid. And I, I didn't understand that. I, I thought, what, did he do something that I didn't see? What's the matter here? And uh, I had to tell my friend who, and this is second, third grade, that he wasn't welcomed in, in, in my place. And it was a hard situation uh, for a little kid to tell another little kid, that he couldn't come over. And, and here's the thing is what got me was when I ended up going to his apartment and, and hanging out with his folks, I was welcomed. And his, you know, he was being raised by a father and a mother and his dad was the coolest guy, man. I remember they sat me up, uh, you know, and, and we had supper. I never, we never in my household, there was never one time where we actually, that I could remember sitting at a table and enjoying a meal. And here's this black family, just, you know, uh, less than a mile away. And they have supper around the table and they talk. And I thought, wow, this is, this is different. I, I didn't, I, I embraced that. I love that. And, um, but I think it's a, it's a hard issue when it comes to, you know, not liking somebody just because of whatever, you know, either a cultural difference or they don't talk the same way that we talk or they, de- or they dress differently. Um, it, it's something that, that I think humanity as a whole needs to work on. And, um, I mean, that's true. When I was a kid, I remember leaving South Boston and having somebody with my buddies call me a snapper. And what they meant with that is that we were mackerel snappers. And if you were Catholic, that means you didn't eat meat on Friday, you ate fish. 
So that was a pejorative word that they used to, or a phrase to identify Catholics as mac mackerel snappers. Wow. Uh, I mean, that goes back to the, that goes back to the fifties, just because of something that you ate, you're a mackerel snapper. Wow. And we would go to Fenway Park to watch the Red Sox. And there was a section at Fenway where the mackerel snappers sat, the Irish, the Italians were kind of in another area. Uh, and it wasn't, it was kids that we knew. Uh, it was kids that we had, some of us had been to school with. Uh, but once again, it, it broke down into tribes, religions, et cetera. Yeah, it's unfortunate that, that there's a split because of, you know, and I think there's foolish uh, reasons to begin with. But uh, uh, you, you, brought, you brought out something that I like. I love baseball. And uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume here, uh, I'm going to go out the deep end and assume that you're a, a Red Sox fan. Absolutely. <laughs> Without hesitation. <laughs> you know, I, I've had... I've had a, a, a love for Boston uh, baseball. And one of, one of the reasons is I remember watching this documentary a long time ago, uh, a few, uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago. And it was about um, uh, Boston, uh, uh, the, the fans, and how uh, the fans uh, stood by this team for decades. Rain or shine, it, it could snow, it could rain, and you were not to move off of your seat until the game was done, finished. And it's not like that in Los Angeles. You know, one of the things that I can't stand of uh, 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 Dodger fans, and I'm a Dodger fan, but one thing I can't stand is the second that we look like we're losing, everybody's out. Everybody's gone. You know, and I don't even, like, some of these seats are very expensive, as you know. The closer you are to the field, the pricier they get. And they will leave their seat if we're down by two. It's, it's incredible how, the, the, you know, a little bit of rain just scatters everybody. And um, uh, one, of my, one of my goals is to visit every ballpark. Uh, that's on my bucket list, to visit every ballpark. And I love Fenway. I, I, I can't wait to, to see uh, the, the, uh, the numbers being changed by hand. By a human right. being, that I think that is so neat. Um, I think it's only you in uh, Chicago, right? That still changes the numbers. Yeah. yeah. The thing that's interesting about going to a place like Fenway Park is that you don't realize it unless you've been to like Dodger Stadium. If you go to Fenway Park, the first thing that leaps out at you is how small it is, and how close everybody is to each other, and with all the kinds of transportation necessary that you're interacting with each other in, small, in, in, in a small environment. And so you really can't be there and getting into fights and to disturbances. You learn right away that you kind of leave all of your biases and prejudices outside. You're a Red Sox fan because you're jammed in close to each other. And that's one stadium where you rarely ever see very many fights. You know, the mackerel snappers, we're over on one Irish section, but that doesn't mean anything else. We're not going to be getting in fights. You're all getting along, and you're all, you're all there for baseball. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> but that's, that, that's so cool. You know, I, I, I dig Boston uh, baseball, uh, I think. Uh, where were you at when, when you finally won the World Series? Oh, I was, I was actually uh, retired. You know, you get, were you there at the at the ballpark when when it happened? No, no, oh. no. 
That would have been great, man. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it would have been. Yeah, it would have been. I, I remember. But again, being... I was in, I was with the Giants. I mean, I was a Giants fan. I was an Oakland A's fan because I was went to high school and was and was living in California. As a matter of fact, uh, there was a threat to Reggie Jackson when hmm. Jackson was with the A's, and they had the police and the FBI in various positions to try to go ahead and identify somebody who was going to hurt Reggie Jackson. So very, very sadly, I had to sit in the dugout for the World Series to make wow. sure that nothing happened to Reggie Jackson. <laughs> but that's, I love the history of um, Boston baseball. I remember when, when, when you guys won the World Series, um, I had the pleasure of watching this game with a diehard New York Yankee fan. Who's a pastor, and we were at church, <laughs> and we put it on the screen, and it was just me and him, and he was just biting his nails, and I was cheering on for Boston. I, and when you guys won, I, 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 it was just hilarious. It was so heartbreaking for this guy. But uh, you, you know, prepared to call the paramedics it. and have him treated? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Airlifted out of the church. <laughs> but that's awesome. Um, you know, I wanted to talk about this other case that, that you know, because you dealt with bank robberies, correct? Correct. And there was yes. this, 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 uh, this incident that you actually helped someone who was a bank robber get a hold of his mom. But what's the details on that? Well, what happened was uh, we arrested a bank robber. Um, and this, sometimes uh, when you arrest people for bank robberies, they can be prosecuted by the state or the city, and they also can be prosecuted federally. It depends upon a whole variety of circumstances. In this instance, he was prosecuted by the state. So he went to a state prison in California. And about three years into his sentence, and I believe he got seven or eight years, he called me and was able to contact me and uh, remembered my name because it was on the arrest reports, et cetera, that he had, because they're constantly appealing. As you well know, you spend half your life in the joint appealing things. Um, <laughs> Nothing else to do. <laughs> uh, so then he went ahead and got a hold of me and said that his sister and his mother, uh, were, he was unable to contact them, and he was concerned about his mother. So I was able to, and I didn't, it didn't take me uh, weeks, it just took me a, a few hours, but interspersed between things that I was doing, I was able to locate his sister and his mother and then report back to him that his mother was okay, she had moved and didn't give a forwarding address and that her health was fine, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he got out of jail about three and a half years later, came back to the San Francisco Bay Area and I'll be damned if all of a sudden we didn't see photographs from another bank robbery and right away the same MO, it was him. And we were able to go ahead and apprehend him. And the first time the arrest was very, very difficult. He clearly did not want to get arrested. And the second one was equally as difficult and he was armed in each instance. And on the second one, uh, he of course knew who I was. And I asked him, I said, I'm curious, would you have shot me with your gun uh, after what had happened with your mother? And he looked at me and he says, you don't understand. I'm who I am and you're who you are. 
You're supposed to do things for me. You're supposed to find my mother because that's who you are. And I'm a criminal and I'm supposed to behave like a criminal. And if it means shooting you to get away, so be it, nothing personal. And that kind of attitude is something law enforcement officers uh, find it difficult to understand that disconnect that you and I have spoken to about on the telephone. That that disconnect runs very, very deep and it really goes into the empathy quotient in the human brain as, as what, what do you get a kick out of? Three young men walking down the street and an elderly man is walking by and one of them cold cocks the guy when he didn't see him. What's the thrill of that, of, of inflicting that kind of carnage on somebody um, that you don't even know? That empathy quotient. The same with Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy is this serial killer. And how do you justify in his brain his ability to go ahead and do the horrible things he did to so many young ladies? And you see it in the street, you see it in the joint, you see it all over when you have this human behavior that's very, very difficult to deal with. Uh, where you have, in your case, a father uh, who is. Uh, not dealing with your mother and with the kind of respect uh, that she deserves, or you're dealing with somebody on the street who is getting in a fight with somebody and they're on the ground and they're almost out, and now two or three guys kick him in the head until he dies or becomes brain damaged. There's that lack of empathy. It almost goes uh, against what you would perceive to be the human element. And none of us understand that you would probably have more insight than we would. You know, it, it's, it's disheartening, man, what, 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 what we see out there, right? Um, uh, it, 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 I think it's getting a little bit more out of hand nowadays with the violence, the, the uproar, just violence, the, the, um, the callousness of, um, you know, uh, of, the, of the criminal mind, if you will, uh, of today you know, um, dealing with or, 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 or watching gangs back then, organized crime back then, there, there was markers that you just didn't cross. There was lines that we just didn't cross. I mean, you, you, didn't, even, you didn't even dare cross because you would have been dealt with or, or you would have been a victim of, of, of um, the hands of the very organiz organization that you were a part of. And today, all that's changed. Folks, we're here with um, FBI agent John Rikes and, and what uh, 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 just the information and um, the abundance of information that, that he's, uh, uh, you know, talking about here on the show and his life growing up. Um, it, it, it's, you know, back then, you, crimes against children, for instance, if you were a criminal or you were in a life of crime, kids were not to be ever touched, ever touched. Women weren't supposed to be ever, ever touched. And now we see in organized crime that sex trafficking has become a big hot ticket and uh, boats of money uh, and, and, and there, there's kidnappings of young uh, 
young girls, man. It's not like they're going after, you know, uh, grown women. They're going after young, younger and younger girls. And, 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 you know, for what? Well, to exploit them, to make money off of them. And this is the kind of stuff that, you know, um, that didn't exist back then. And if it did, you better be hiding yourself from, from, from all that, that ruckus because you were going to be dealt with with the same crowd that you ran with. What are, what are, the, what are the things that, are, that, that you're seeing today that perhaps you weren't seeing back then, uh, John? Well, what's interesting is that we had one case that you and I discussed where it was a quadruple machete knife homicide. And in this instance, it was a 14-month-old, four-year-old, seven-year-old, and the man in the house. It is one of those cases, and when I would teach internationally and teach domestically uh, 11 or 12 weeks a year, that's what they gave my partner and I time to go teach. It was a case that afterwards, I still cannot look at the pictures. I cannot look at the pictures of the crime scene. As much as I had seen over the years, it is hard to bring my, my, my mind to go ahead and to visualize the terror that occurred in that house by three gang members who were punishing the man in the house because of some uh, alleged narcotic trans, uh, transgression. Whether or not the person was a snitch or not, you know, we don't really don't know to this date. But to take a 14-year-old and to hold him up in the air, cut his throat, and then hit him on the concrete floor, uh, and then to go in and do the same thing to the four-year-old and the seven-year-old, and then to go after the adult in the room, you wonder what is the disconnect? Uh, what happened? These three individuals that were responsible, they themselves were three or four or five years old at one time. They had a birth mother. They grew up in our society in some way. How, what is the disconnect that put them in a position where they could commit an act like that? Uh, not only to commit an act like that, but to go ahead and believe in their minds that that was for the good of the organization that they, rep that they represented. Uh, I don't know that any of us have an answer. And that's why when, you go, when we go around to when a police officer arrives at your house on a 911 call, I don't think anybody on the police department is prepared to have the educational background to deal with the social dynamic that is going on in society when you have people who are interacting with law enforcement in such a heinous way, is that how is this happening? What is the disconnect? And one of the things that I know we discuss, and that is movies, television, etc. If you look now, it is unbridled violence. I remember clearly looking at a picture of a bank robber <coughs> excuse me, and I don't know if you can see me, but he had his gun sticking straight out, and instead of the normal way, was holding it perpendicular to the ground. That's not how you handle a firearm, but that was depicted in a movie. And so now all of a sudden, a young gang member sees that that's how you hold a gun, and now they're holding that as a result of the movies. And, you see, and somebody asked me why my wife and I uh, don't watch all of these series that are on television. 
The Walking Dead or some of these other things. The last thing that we want to do is people misbehaving badly. We already know that they do. Why is that being glorified in the movies? Why is that? Why do we have individuals who are a star based upon their ability in a movie to go ahead and kill people? So, I, I mean, I don't know that I have any answers. Uh, I interviewed uh, three of those suspects, and as far as I could tell, they did not have any internal emotion that I could in any way attack to try to get them to break down other than the simple phrase, don't F with the so-and-so, their gang. That was the extent of their explanation as to why they committed that crime. It's, it's, it's a sad situation. I mean, and, and, and it does have to do with a disconnect somewhere. Um, whether it's, you know, I, I think growing up without a father has something to do with it or growing up with a father that's abusive, uh, that has some thing to do with it. I don't think it's the all of it, but it's the some, some of it, you know, that, that you grow up and, and you become desensitized uh, because you see um, the gore right in front of you. And, you know, the one thing that I don't like about Hollywood is the double standard that they have, because in, in, in one portion, they're pushing these types of movies, right? that you don't want to watch, your wife doesn't want to watch. And because it's, it is glorifying violence and it has, you know, high caliber uh, weapons and, and guns ablaze and, and the whole yards. And in the same breath, they want to uh, talk about, you know, taking the rights of, uh, uh, of citizens to bear arms of, you know, uh, citizens that have never committed a crime that uh, are, you know, they're, they're, they use them for sport. They're using them to protect their, their own families and their homes. Um, and then here's Hollywood saying, no, no, you know, uh, uh, we don't need more guns out there. It's such a double standard. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I sit back and I look at that and I go, you know, do they even hear what's, what's coming out of, their, out of their same breath? Because their actions are so just, um, they're very opposite. Um, but yeah, uh, there is a disconnect there somewhere, you know, uh, I, I was on a speaking engagement not too long ago. Uh, I think it was this January, in fact. Uh, I went to uh, Washington, D.C. to discuss, um, uh, you know, uh, crime at the border and, and organized crime and gangs uh, at large. And one of the things that uh, caught my attention was, you know, Tom Homan, he, he, he was on the, on, the, on the speaker board. Uh, he was the keynote speaker, and I spoke right after him. And one of the things that he shared was what he saw in one incident where a young girl was hung on a tree and spread out eagle and found dead hanging on a tree. And, you know, how does someone, how does, how does someone do that and have absolutely a disregard and, 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 and not care about doing that. And this little girl was, I think 12 years old is what he said. How do you get to that point? Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to even know how, how someone gets to that point. But I think that, you know, um, you know, growing up, uh, I grew up on, um, 
the wily coyote, you know, uh, uh, chasing around, uh, uh, you know, and, and that's the violence that we saw back then. But that, that was just, uh, it, it doesn't even come in comparison to what we see today on television. I think it has a lot to do with um, what we watch and what comes through our ears. Um, the amount of violence that's out there, both on TV and on the streets, it's doing a number, you know, um, video games. We can go, uh, the, the list is endless of how the, um, it's at the fingertips of every young kid now. Because, you know, uh, I mean, there's kids that are, you know, now they're five, five years old and they have a thousand dollar, you know, iPhone uh, uh, that, that they got for their birthday, which to this day, I don't get. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. How do well, we get- it's interesting. The first one thing that happened to me is a week after my daughter was born, uh, I'm in the office and we were going out on a case and they had a new strip club that had opened up. Uh, and the first thing I thought about is the last thing I want to see is my little baby daughter on a stage in that trip strip club with all these guys hooting and hollering and trying to put money down her panties for her to earn a living doing that. Uh, and that kind of what goes around kind of comes around when you wonder when people are four and five and six and seven years old, what's happening in their life, what's happening in their society and their culture that is, we're not recognizing somehow uh, the potential for these young people to, to go ahead and turn into uh, the violent criminals that we see. When my wife and I were, we had stopped, I was in, we were stopped in Japan following an overseas assignment and she went with me. I went out for a run and she was walking and we met at, at, in downtown Tokyo at this park and at the four corners of the park, everybody was playing baseball. So one of the balls rolled over to me and I picked it up. And when I tossed it back at one of these kids who was about 12 or 13, I put a little juice on it and threw him a curveball. And he went crazy, yelling, curveball, curveball. And a bunch of them came over to go ahead and have me show them how to throw a curveball. While we were standing there, out came from behind us some Japanese ladies, and they brought some beverages for my wife and I. It was a beautiful scene. But if you think what happened in the 1940s, and you look at what happened with the Japanese people, we found them to be the nicest, most pleasant people to deal with. FBI agents that are of Japanese ancestry that I worked with, or I was very close with. And yet you could see a whole society change and turn and do some of the things that you saw in the, the war in the Pacific. So I don't know that you and I have an answer yep. for the ways that human beings can somehow uh, have their empathy quotient to other human beings disrupted to the point where they do these heinous things. If you and I can solve it, we're going to make a lot of money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's hilarious. But you know, uh, you, you know, yeah, I, 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 um, you know, for me, my change, you know, and, and I'm pretty sure, uh, 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 can share that with you. Um, for me, it was, uh, my faith, 
uh, in Christ. That, that's what really did the number in my heart. Um, I don't think, you know, and I share when I go on speaking engagements everywhere, uh, I, I always share this. I say, uh, you know, you don't wake up one morning and go, you know, I think I'm done, you know, uh, hurting people. Uh, nobody wakes up like that. You know, if you, if you've been a criminal all your life, you know, I started at 11 years old, you know, you just progressively get worse and worse. And you just don't wake up one morning and go, I'm going to, I'm going to stop robbing people and I'm going to stop, you know, hurting people. It doesn't happen like that. Um, uh, Are there, you know, are the um, stepping stones out there, uh, help uh, that's out there? Yeah, there is. But they're stepping stones. And I think for me uh, personally, it, it was my faith in Christ that, that really did the number on me. And, um, you know, uh, you know, am I perfect? <laughs> the answer would be a very fat no. Uh, not at all. Uh, I make mistakes still. Uh, I, you know, say the wrong things still. You know, there's moments where, you know, uh, my, my wife will be the first one to tell you, yeah, he's not a perfect guy at all. <laughs> you know, uh, but we, we, here we are, and, and, you know, by the grace of God, I, I, I've been married to the same woman. Uh, we're about to go into our 22nd year on July 3rd. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, to this day, I, I, I don't even know why she stuck with me this long. Uh, it, it, she could have done so much better. But, um, you know, we have a great relationship. It's not perfect neither, but it's a great relationship. And I think it has everything to do with, um, you know, for me, it was my faith for our family it was our, our faith that, that has kept us together. Um, you know, uh, my kids, um, I, I just, I love coming home, uh, watching them. Uh, I love coming home to our dog. You know, we just got a little dog. You, you, I've been talking a whole lot about our little, uh, uh, golden retriever that we just have five months, five month old. The guy is famous all over our, our streets. Um, but you know, uh, I didn't grow up like that. I, that's not how I, I grew up. I grew up very differently. And, um, you know, uh, I, I love hearing the side of law enforcement that, you know, I love for, the, for our listeners to see that there is a human behind that badge because a lot of, a lot of people right now, it, we need to really relax and, and, and see that law enforcement is not a bad thing that these guys have a job. It is a stressful job. It is a job that is, um, you know, it's not for everyone. Uh, they're not, they're most likely not going to become rich and famous by doing that. Um, but it's a job and, 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 you know, they want to come home just like we want to come home, just like you want to come home. And I think that we need to understand that there has to be, a table in which we come together, we talk, and we get to know each other. If you want to talk about the disconnect, it, it's, it's in our hearts. And we need to be able to be adults and listen to each other and really, really respect one another. Um, it, it's not going to be some government program that's going to help us do this. And uh, John, I wish that we had the perfect solution uh, yeah, we would be very, very much uh, rich if we come up with a solution like that. Um, I don't think that we have enough time to come up with a solution like that, <laughs> to be uh, real with you. But, man, John, uh, uh, I really enjoy our conversation. Um, you know, what? what's next for you? I mean, you, you spent 
over 30 years in, in, in the FBI. What's next for you? Uh, what's, ne what's next for me is being 78 years old. That's what's oh, wow. being next for me. And all of a, all of a sudden, uh, a couple of things happen. And that is uh, you come to grips with your own mortality. Yeah. And you become, you come to grips with your own mortality because so many other people that you know and have known uh, have come to grips with their own mortality by passing away. Uh, and so that's something that it's a new challenge, and that is uh, trying to live as best I can, uh, dealing with the, the, the vagaries of old age, uh, trying to, try to do, it, do the recreational things um, that, that I enjoy, that my wife enjoys. Uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, your wife at home. I mean, like uh, my wife says, uh, and very convincingly to most people, that the, wherever I am is depriving some village of an idiot. So I spend most of my time trying to go <laughs> ahead and not be, continue to be an idiot at all. So that's kind of what's, <laughs> what, what, what's on my agenda. Now, I was told by a resource, um, I don't know anything about this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to ask. Well, actually, it's not even a question. Um, they said, whatever you do, don't have him share with you any marshmallow jokes. I don't know what that means at all. But well, <laughs> I think we can do it. We can do it on the air. Um, <laughs> what, ha what happened was is that I moved to this location many years ago. And there were some young boys, and uh, they were uh, 11, 12 years old, and they worked at the golf course, and they would clean the carts, et cetera, when they would, when they would finish up. And I worked uh, as a starter uh, on the golf course and, and made sure everything was squared away. So I've, I did that for a long time. Well, they're now 32, 33 years old, and they're married, and they have kids. And... Right now, they're very, very nice young men. They're, they have nice careers, but we used to have a lot of laughs together. And one of the, a group of them ran into me at the golf course, and one of them, kind of being a wise guy, said to me, um, what's it like now? You're going to be 78 years old. Do you have any sex life left at, now that you're 70 years old or 78 years old? And I said, well, the best way I can describe it is that you've got a four and a two year old at home. And that is when you get home, see if you can put a marshmallow in a piggy bank. That's what it's like. Oh, John. <laughs> oh, no. So you can cut that from the podcast. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> that is, I don't know why he, uh, I'm going to have a talk with my, my, with my resource. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know exactly who it is. <laughs> that is hilarious. What's interesting is that your source and then another another agent, the three of us, we have remained close since 1968. Wow! And uh, both of those individuals uh, tragically went through the loss of their wives, and then wow. now uh, they have remarried. Um, and one of them still bears a burden of dealing with a son that's that's had some issues. Uh, but we've, we've watched uh, our careers go. We have watched ourselves grow old, our families grow up, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And when you're talking about bonds, that's the kind of bond 
of friendship that people need to have in their communities, in their neighborhoods, you know, with their workmates, uh, et cetera. And that's why I brought up the fact that there were guys that I worked with in the fields that later on I saw uh, at, at, at a situation that was very unpleasant. And we were unable to bridge that relationship, the work relationship that we had. Uh, that didn't go ahead and hold over as we were going to get into a fight at this place called Spidey's. As a matter of fact, one of the guys there hit a good friend of mine in the head with a bottle. Uh, not anticipating the damage. I had a young man that was on the second floor of an apartment building during the Vietnam riots. He throws a brick off the top of the balcony and it bounces off the helmet I had as a police officer. I was able to chase him down and I, had, I was on top of him and he's screaming and yelling at me because my helmet was off. I had blood running down my forehead and he said, oh, 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 John, John, I'm so-and-so. You remember we were in class together. I didn't know it was you. What kind of thinking is that when a college student takes a brick, throws it on some other human being that he didn't know that could do that kind of damage, and then wants to apologize when he finds out who it is? That's another disconnect that yeah. we all have to deal with. Yeah. Uh, but not the marshmallows. That was a connect. <laughs> or an attempt to. <laughs> to. Correct. <laughs> John, we, hey, folks, uh, I know that you have enjoyed uh, this podcast with uh, former FBI agent John Reich. Um What a pleasure it is to meet you, um, uh, to talk with you. And uh, what a what a what a great honor it is uh, uh, to just to have you on our show. And um, you know, I, I love seeing. I, I love. I, I don't know why, but I, I love hanging out with older folks. And the reason is because they have so much, so much wisdom. So much. They've seen things, done things that I haven't done yet, and uh, some of which I hope I don't do. Uh, but you know, uh, <laughs> I, I I I don't know for what for whatever reason I've always hung out with um. Uh, and older crowds and um and and now uh you know looking at your friendships uh you know you and and, and the other two uh fbi agents that will eventually be on the show um just um wow uh what a what a what a healthy lifestyle what an example to community that you guys have been and uh, i just want to say thank you for your service thank you for um you know what you've done to protect the community to protect this nation um, you know, there's the, I don't think you get enough thank yous, um, uh, along the way uh, of, of your field. And I'm so glad that you're, um, retired and, and enjoying, uh, the best years yet. And, um, I'll be praying for you, John. Thank you so much for your time on the show. And, um, you know, I, I can't wait to, uh, uh, air this. And, um, you know, uh, I think we had some, the marshmallow though, man, man, I hope, I wish I didn't ask that. But it's funny, so I'm just going to leave it on. I don't think we're going to edit that part. <laughs> but it's nice to meet you, and I'm sure we'll talk again. That's right. Thank you so much, John, for being on the Shot Collar podcast. Till the next time, if you have seen my co-host, Joel Needler, I know you're out there eating my pupusas, and you don't want to share. It's okay, Joel. Uh, I will be after my pupusa at some point. <laughs> All right, brothers. Thank you so much. Till next time, have a blessed day. 
You are listening to the Shot Caller Podcast with Casey Diaz and Joel Needler. You can find us online at uh, Casey Diaz Author on Facebook, uh, The Shot Caller Book on Instagram, and on Twitter at The Shot Caller BK. That's at The Shot Caller BK. You can also find us at CaseyDiaz.net and send an email to info at CaseyDiaz.net. That's info at CaseyDiaz.net.